This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome back to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Seth Busby and thanks for joining me. Now, I'm usually joined by my lovely co-host Adam Bubb, but unfortunately he has tonsillitis. So he's taken off the agenda today because no talking for him. But now, if it's your first time listening to First Act, it's a podcast series where we take a deep dive into the origin stories of Australia's most fascinating founders and business owners. And along the way, we uncover some unique insights into their inspiration and innovation and unpack the roads they took to get to their success. Now, let's meet our guest. Today's guest is Natasha Nicolau. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm very excited. Oh, awesome. Now, Natasha, you're the founder of Conserving Beauty, Australia's first waterless beauty brand. I am. You've done some major inroads into changing the way beauty is manufactured and processed in this country. But let's not start with that. You're a bit of a um, okay. a science geek to begin with. And um, <laughs> that's probably where your yeah, journey you first began. That. But... Yes. We normally start the show with our first act icebreaker. And your icebreaker okay. today is the zombie apocalypse is coming. Would you Ooh. run and hide or would you stand up and fight? Absolutely fight. It's always fight or flight. I feel like business is fight or flight and I'm always a fight. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Are you a Walking Dead fan? <laughs> No, but like, should I be after this? Maybe I'll have to go and be one. <laughs> I think so. If you're at all interested in zombies, so. then you need to watch The Walking Dead. <laughs> yeah, and now I want to know what would you do? Would you would you stand up and fight? Oh, I'd be a fighter for sure. I've got absolutely. Yeah, I'm one of those people. Once I disturbed a burglar in my house, and I chased him out and got oh, wow. our possessions back, and the police were like, oh, "You're wow. like about." one of five percent of people that would actually do that most people either freeze or run away (laughs) so now i know that i want to be with you i'll be standing next to you in the fight you've already got one of your previous experience your three defenders (laughs) (laughs) awesome so as i said you're the founder of conserving beauty which is australia's first waterless beauty brand so where did your passion for beauty products come from? Were you like the kid who was always playing with your mum's makeup? I was. I really was that kid. I feel like from a young age, makeup and skincare and hair care, anything beauty related was always fun because I feel like it allowed me to play with, you know, my self-expression and how I wanted to present to the world. And I found it really empowering, even from a young age. Um, but of course, I definitely fell in love with beauty products when I started going into Mecca stores when I would have been probably 12. So it's been a long, it's been a long beauty road. But at the same time, I was always really heavily involved in like social justice and planet impact all throughout high school. 
I was I was an avid volunteer. And so for me, it was actually a real blessing to be able to kind of unite impact and purpose with beauty products, I guess, an unconventional part. <laughs> yeah, it's not the most likely. You don't normally think of, of beauty queens as people that are fighting the fight for impact. <laughs> right. Right. And people are always like, well, are you a beauty company or are you an impact company? And I'm like, no, we're both. We're the perfect, we're the perfect midpoint. <laughs> so did you have a massive Mecca makeup collection? I do. Do you know what? And I still do. You can't, you know what? Every time you go into a store, you fall in love with the team because they're so brilliant at what they do. And the amount of education that goes on behind the scenes is quite remarkable. So I feel like I go in trying to pick up one thing and I'll leave with another 10. I don't even know how it happened, but it just did. <laughs> the power you know, of persuasive selling. The power. <laughs> yes, the power of education. They get me. <laughs> <laughs> they're probably, if they're listening, they're like, ah, oh. <laughs> we, yes. we just need to earmark her as one of our top customers. I know. <laughs> I know. I probably am. And now, so now when I go in, obviously my products are in. Some of the stores, not all of them, but it is pretty surreal because um, it's definitely one of my happy places. <laughs> it's good to find out someone's happy place. Yours is a mecca store. Yeah, that's, that, that's one of them. <laughs> now, it, your um, beauty journey, obviously there is that um, that joy and love for makeup, but it, it kind of all began with that Bachelor of Science degree at, at Deakin. So yeah, what sparked your interest in science in the first place? So funnily enough, I was always somebody that was obsessed with numbers. I loved math. So I then fell in love with chemistry just because it felt like I could finally excel at something. Um, And so I loved all throughout high school. I did chemistry, biology. I did two different maths. Like I was absolute geek. Um, But I was always kind of the worst one in the class. I was surrounded by brilliant, like brilliant brainiacs. And so I felt like I always had to work you know, 10 times harder to keep up with them. But I loved that challenge and I loved feeling um, feeling like I was a part of a puzzle and like solutions and I just kind of loved it. So it was, it felt like a natural progression for me to go study science at university. But at that time, I, I by no means was planning a career in beauty. I was thinking maybe I'd go down the research pathway. I think I did an internship at Baker IDI, which um, I don't know if you're familiar, it's, it's a research institute in Melbourne that's attached to the Alfred Hospital. And so I actually thought I'd probably go down a completely different road, if I'm honest. And then through studying my degree, I majored in biochemistry, minored in biology. Um, I was really into wellness and beauty, and I found myself getting my first kind of grad role at a beauty and wellness company called Swiss. And so when I joined, I actually joined in operations, just hoping to get my foot in the door. And I thought at the time, maybe I'll go and join the regulatory team or the science team or R&D. And I ended up falling in love with operations, ethical sourcing, sustainable supply chains. And then I worked in product development. So I just became obsessed. I was like, wow, this is so cool. I'm at the forefront of how we choose our ingredient and how we map a supply chain and how we build a product. And then I felt like I kind of used my critical thinking from science and knowledge of formulating a little bit um, to be able to start working on that. And I loved it. And I kind of stayed with that for years. So that's a, a, a pretty awesome job, landing at Swiss, which is probably one of the biggest wellness was, brands in was. the planet. So what else do you think you learned from your time there? 
So I was there for several years and I had, I think I've had like three or four different jobs. Every six months I would change. I was lucky enough to, you know, excel and get promoted because I joined at a time that was really exciting for the business. It was just before they sold um, and it's quite a successful sale and quite highly publicized. So it was before then and I was with a smaller team. And I think when you come into a business that's small to medium, you're really exposed to opportunities and they really allow you to kind of take on more responsibility and learnings. And so at the time, I started off very junior, obviously, and I was working really closely and directly with the COO and I was helping him. I was part assisting him, whatever he needed. I was I was game. I was happy to help in any way to learn anything. And so by doing that, I formed a really nice relationship with him and the senior management team. And then I kind of got to go to board meetings and I took minutes and I really kind of learned the other kind of commercial side of business, even though I was also in the operations team. And they were so kind and willing to teach, which I guess I was very, very lucky to have because without that kind of exposure to the people who are making all of the business decisions, I probably wouldn't have the learning foundation that I do now. So definitely grateful for my Swiss experience. And then I left the business after they'd sold. I stayed on for a a while and then I left the business because I actually ended up following the founding family who sold Swiss. Um, he and the CEO at the CFO, sorry, at the time, they went to set up a private equity fund to kind of back the next wave of beauty and wellness founders. So I was like, sold. I'm with you guys. And I was lucky enough to be one of five people to go with them to work on the fund. So is that the foundry you're talking about there? That was the foundry. It's now called Era Ventures. They did a bit of a name change. <laughs> Why? Why? The Foundry is such a cool name. <laughs> the Foundry is a cool name. You know, Era Ventures is also a cool name. I feel like, you know, they've had the best of both worlds. But yes, so I went there. I was there for, I think, about five, five or so years up until I was doing what I'm doing now. Loved it. Those are my glory. So can you tell me a bit more about your time there at the Foundry? Yeah, what, it was awesome. How does the Foundry support founders? So they were and obviously I'm biased, they're the best people, but I was like, cool, I get to go with the ultimate teachers, right? And so they help back founders by investing. So they give them growth capital to support their next kind of business milestones. And then they also give their expertise and advice. So they'll help you with anything you need, whether that's connections or, um, you know, strategy sessions or introductions or whatever you need. They are quite hands-on. And so when I worked with them, what I would do was I would help support the due diligence of new brands and founders. I saw so many different pitch to us and that was kind of what sparked part of my ideas actually. Um, and I got I got really obsessed with startup and problem solving and people that were out there trying to create solutions to be better. And so I would do, not only would I do like the due diligence side with them, I was lucky enough to do lots of secondments with the businesses that they invested in. So they would deploy me and I would, you know, do six or 12 months or whatever projects I was doing with all their different businesses in different things, whether that was supply chain help or innovation and new product development pipeline. I ended up doing a big stint in sales, one of their businesses called Welco. And so whatever they kind of needed, I was always there to help. So I feel like I got the perfect learning experience because I saw both 
being in startup and I was very much amongst it, very hands-on, very project-oriented. But then I was also lucky to go to strategy and board sessions and see like the other side of a commercial business and how to actually run, you know, profit and loss and the the importance of profitability and managing team in and out and seeing businesses at different levels, how they need different requirements. And so, yeah, it was literally the best job. If I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, there's no doubt I would have stayed. Yeah. And you just mentioned um, Wellco. Is that Elle McPherson's brand? Yes. Elle McPherson's brand. She started her wellness company. She actually created the product before she even decided to bring it to the world. She was using it for years before with her doctor. Um, so it's a it's an ingestible beauty product. It's a greens powder. That was the first one. And so I originally worked on many projects for them, including product development and supply chain. But then they also had a, an opening and I guess a bit of a gap for someone to kind of take on heading up their sales for all of their retailers globally. And at the time I was plotting conserving beauty and I thought, I've got no sales experience, no marketing. I am very much an operations supply chain science girl. And so what a wonderful opportunity to try and get exposure to a whole other side of the business that I hadn't learned. And they, even though I knew nothing about sales, they were like, don't worry, it's all relationship management, which is effectively what you do in the operations side. It's just on the other end. So I ended up doing that for well over a year and I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. And I did that four days a week while I was working on my own brand, actually. (laughs) And were there any kind of uh, big learnings or big mistakes along the way? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I feel like for every key win, you've got 10 things that have gone wrong in the background. Like that's what I think about about anything. I think it was a tough time because, you know, COVID had just hit as well and you're trying to motivate people that are in store selling your products. And you had to think about creative ways to kind of reach them, incentivize them, help train them, provide them with all the tools that they need. So I feel like, and that was a completely new role for me. So that was a really unique challenge. Um, but I also think maybe even coming at it from a lens where I had no experience, I thought about things in a different way and I probably applied that to different solutions. So it was, I feel like I had to make some some hiccups to make some good wins. But Welco is amazing. The team were amazing. And Elle is actually, fun fact, now on my board of directors, no. so, which was really cool. So she, she turned from boss slash mentor to now conserving beauty mentor. That's awesome. Yeah, which is cool. Who would have thought um, I know. when you were thought? putting on that, that mecha makeup back in the day that one day Elle McPherson would be on your board? Certainly not me. <laughs> Certainly not me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, she's been, she's been really instrumental in my learning foundation. So very lucky to have worked with her. If you look at your LinkedIn, it like it, and just from this discussion as well, it just seems like you've really truly immersed yourself in that health and wellness and beauty space. Mm. Are there any regrets about not following the science path a different way? You mentioned working no. with the hospital. No, no, not at all. I think, I think everything kind of leads you to where you're supposed to go. And for me, I feel like my greater my greater like vision of what I'd want to do with my life is to somehow positively impact people on the planet, which is why I kind of did science in the first place. So I feel like I am still doing that with our own brand. We make, you know, great waterless products that make your skin feel good, but they're also equally great for the planet and we're saving water, carbon and waste in the process. So I feel like my fulfillment of that kind of side 
is definitely through my business. It's just in a very unconventional way, which is which is actually kind of cool and different as well because it just shows other young people that are, you know, going down the science road, it doesn't necessarily have to be so black and white and you can kind of forge your own path and think of your own solution and your own business idea, which is cool because I feel like even working in the fund, I saw so many brilliant founders pitch and I would say 99% of them are marketers. And there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, you need creative geniuses. I mean, I know that more than anyone. They're the people I've hired first. But you know, what, why couldn't we hear from, you know, an operations person or a supply chain person or a science, like a scientist, you know what I mean? So I feel like, you know, it's a bit more exciting. I actually wish I could have looked up to someone like that earlier on in my career. I'm sure all that supply chain stuff that you did during your early career has come in really good stead in the, the, the past. Oh, it has yeah. been everything. Yeah, it has been everything for me because, it's it's not only just like having the knowledge of supply chain and you know the the crisis that we've been in for two years and all the supply chain dramas. It's also the roots of making sure that you actually can have a sustainable impact to the planet. Because if you don't know where your ingredients are sourced from and the people who are farming them and how they're treated and how they're transported here and where you're manufacturing, et cetera, well, then how can you actually make sure that you are saving water, carbon and waste along the way? And I feel like for brands, it's the the one thing I tell people or talk to people about is actually having an understanding of your supply chain and having that visibility and traceability is everything. And that's actually how you'll be able to make like a legitimate impact. So thank God I did that because if I didn't do that, I really don't even think my business would exist. And it's just becoming so much more important to consumer these days as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's everything. I think people demand transparency. Like let's just be upfront and call things what they are and where do they come from and can I see it? Yeah. I will be Mm. back with more from Natasha after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. And we're back with Natasha. Now, I would love to move on to conserving beauty because obviously it's your passion project. It's your baby. It's your life. It's a super innovative beauty brand. You've managed to eliminate water from the process. And I I don't know how many of our listeners would be aware, but the beauty industry just has a massive water footprint. Like, just turn over a, a beauty product and you see number one ingredient is be- in beauty products usually is water. So there's that element. Yeah. But then in the manufacturing of the products, there's enormous amount of water used as well. It's just when you exactly. consider how scarce water is for so many people, it's a, it's a significant real problem. And yet you've been able to find a solution. So what has inspired you, number one, to create the brand? And what was mm. the aha moment where you went, oh, 
this is what I can do and this is how I can get rid of water. I know, you'll laugh at where my aha moment was. It's, always, it's a bit ironic. So I um, I definitely thought for years about creating my own brand and what would be the solution and how would I help. And I definitely wanted to do sustainability legit because I feel like there's a few things. Number one, I feel like the, the perception of what a sustainable product is in beauty is quite skewed. I feel like a lot of people have a great understanding of refillable or recyclable packaging and it's very much centered on packaging or being vegan. And I'm just kept thinking, well, hang on, there's about 30 things that happen in a product life cycle and in the supply chain before you even choose packaging where you've already had a huge impact to the planet. And why are we not talking about those things? And yes, packaging and waste is absolutely important, but it's not the end-all be-all solution. And so I was like, well, what is? And so I decided to map a product life cycle. This was two years before we launched. And I looked at each stage and I just kept thinking, how do I align with the SDGs? How do I um, help save our most precious, precious resources? And when I did that, I was like, of course, it's water. Water is involved in every single stage of a product life cycle. We need it to do everything. All of our clothes, our transport, fruit, everything has a huge water footprint. And in beauty, it starts from when you grow ingredients, harvest, extract, manufacture, process, everything needs water. And then you mentioned it before. We as a beauty industry have just become so heavily reliant on water because we use it often as the main ingredient. So most beauty products are filled with, you know, 70 to 90% water. And then you need preservatives because bacteria grows in water and you've got fragrances and you just got a sprinkle of the good stuff, basically, the stuff that's actually going to benefit your skin. And I was just like, how crazy that we're shipping bottles of plastic, mostly filled with water with a sprinkle of some ingredients in there (laughs) and calling it clean beauty and trying to say, oh, but don't worry, it's good for the planet because 50% of it's made of recycled plastic. I was like, that's just not the the answer. And I was like, why can't we just take water out and give people 100% of the good stuff and it's smaller, compact, potent, and we we can make a way better product. And so that was my moment where I was like, water conservation, waterless beauty, we don't need it in there. I've had that aha moment, you'll laugh in the shower, as you do when I'm using water. <laughs> um, and so I just went on this journey. I was like, let's save water, carbon and waste. Let's create beauty products that save water, carbon and waste. And so I thought it's not good enough to just take water out of the formulations. I want to map our whole supply chain and I want to measure our exact water footprint so I can actually tell people this is actually how much water we save. And so we partnered up with the Water Footprint Network, who are the leaders in water footprint assessment globally. And they're in the Netherlands. They defined what a water footprint is. So, you know, no better people to partner with. And we've been leading a custom research project to measure our exact water footprint, which is really cool. And we're going to be publishing it later this year. We did the same with our carbon footprint with our non-for-profit partners at Sea Trees and Trace. And then we manage our waste footprint by using infinitely recyclable, compostable or dissolvable materials, which we can, I'm sure you want to talk about our dissolvable fabric in a bit. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of how it went. So you were in the shower, you had this great idea. I was in the shower. <laughs> yeah. I come out of the shower, I run to my partner and I was like, guess what? I've got it. And he just laughed at me. He's like, okay. <laughs> He's like, no worries. And this was two years before I launched. I started working on it for about two years. Yeah. So how valuable was your science background when it came to like going from idea to product ideation? 
Oh, I think it was everything. I think, number one, it teaches you critical thinking and problem solving. So that's just the first step. But I also think I had a really good understanding of formulations and also having worked in product development and knowing how people actually develop a formula um, was was really important. And then having my supply chain overlaid with that, I was able to choose and pick and source ingredients and map our entire formulations around that. And so it was kind of like the perfect storm. And so I went to formulating, took about a year, started business planning, tried to work out, you know, how am I going to do this? How do I how do I launch a brand and what what kind of needs to be part of that? And then we ended up launching, I still had my full-time job. Um, and we launched end of last year. So November 26, 2021, which was cool. So can we backtrack a little bit so did you bootstrap the the whole yeah. thing yeah the first the very first bit um me and my business partner fed we bootstrapped and then we got a very small injection of capital from the fund that I was working for we convinced them um to just do a little tiny bit to trial just so I could launch and buy products and that was at the end of last year um, and then I still kept my job the whole time, obviously, didn't pay myself, obviously, had to do that for, you know, to live life. Yeah. And then I was able to quit my job at the end of, no, it would have been January this year. So I'm just trying to remember. I'm like January this year. And then at that time, I'd locked Mecca, I'd locked our patented technology, which we can explore in a second. And then so I did another raise off the back of that to actually be able to quit, hire people and do it properly. Because, you know, how can you run a business properly if you've got a full-time job and you're working morning nights and weekends? Like, it would never have had the attention that it needed to. So, yeah. So then I did another raise, a proper raise, I feel, um, a seed raise. Uh, it would have been March, April this year. That's a fast journey when you consider sometimes product development just takes years and years and years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I feel like it was a it was a two-year kind of journey before then, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because we, yeah, no, it was definitely a two-year journey before then with product development, but you're right. I feel like if you've got that hustle mentality, you can't help yourself. You just move quick. So you just... Uh, touched briefly on your patented technology. Can we delve into that yeah. a little bit and explain what makes yeah, um, your product so different? So about a, so a year into my plotting and planning, I hadn't launched yet, um, and formulating, I met I met an innovative group out of Europe. They I met them through like a supply chain connection that we had with somebody else. And I was telling them what I was doing and about water conservation. And they were like, oh, you've actually got to meet this other founder, Brian. He's so amazing. And he's actually created a fabric that ironically dissolves in water. And it doesn't break down into any microplastics. It leaves no waste behind. But, you know, it's waterless, technically, the, the actual fabric. And he's like, he's doing it for medical space. He's using it for burn victims because the amount of time that it takes to undress and we, sorry, redress wound care is really labor intensive. It's painful for the for the victims, and then also, you know, obviously, this creates a lot of waste. And so he's like, you should just meet him and have a chat. And you know, I feel like there's some similarities between you two. And so when I met, I met them, and we hit it off from our first chat, and we kind of inspired this idea where I was like, well, hang on, 
I could create a formula that would be compatible with the fabric and then we could merge um, merge the two together and help really solve things that people use in the beauty industries, all the single-use items that we all actually want to use but they have such a detriment to the planet. So things like makeup wipes and sheet masks and under-eye masks and scrub mitts and so many, so many applications of single-use items. And so we through it was that took about a year long um, partnership and negotiation and then product development. But we then did a special special partnership for the beauty and personal care space exclusively, which is brilliant. And so we had the patented technology for beauty. And so we created our first two products, our dissolvable makeup wipes and our dissolvable sheet masks. And we launched our dissolvable makeup wipes back in April and we sold out in two weeks, which was unexpected. And then we launched our makeup wipes, I believe it was July. Sorry, sheet masks in July. And so, yeah, it's been an amazing partnership. The fabric is really special. I feel like it's a completely different experience to what you would have experienced with a traditional makeup wipe. Um, And so our, our fabric and the idea is that you would dissolve it where you already have a water footprint. So the sink the toilet, the shower, um, and it's completely fine for our waterways and doesn't pollute or break down into any microplastics. I've got to send you some so you can try them. <laughs> I won't say no. <laughs> you won't say no. No, who would? <laughs> but yeah, it's been an, it's been an awesome partnership. Uh, and you mentioned that you signed with um, getting your products into Mecca. Yes. Oh my goodness. Definitely one of my highlights. How did that happen? Did you leverage some of your past relationships? Well, funnily enough, when I was managing all of the beauty retailers for Wellco, we were not with Mecca. So I knew everyone except for Mecca. So you'll laugh. People would have liked me, but don't you already have all the connections at all the other retailers that are great? And I'm like, yeah, but they're not Mecca. (laughs) And so I was like, I need to meet someone at Mecca. I don't want to reach out cold. I know how this this works and you've really got to kind of get a bit of an intro for them to actually listen to you. Because you can imagine, they probably get hundreds of people reaching out every day. Do you know what I mean? Because when you're the best of the best, everyone wants to be with you. And so I was like, I don't want to get lost in the middle. And at the time, somebody, so I hadn't launched. I was nowhere near launch. I just had lab samples. And someone at the time, a mentor said to me, Nobody cares about sustainability. No one's going to buy your sustainable beauty products because people don't care. They just want to look good. And no one like Mecca would ever range you. And I was like, I don't believe you. <gasps> Who was that all. person? I, like, <laughs> I can't, he will not be named. But, you know, let's just say he's no longer a mentor. And so, anyway, I was like, that is the worst piece of advice I've ever been given. And I was like, you know what? He doesn't think I'm going to get in. How about I go and ask the people at Mecca and see if they think this product and this brand has a place for them one day? And it might not be now. It might not be when we launch, but it might be in a few years. But at least I'll know if they think it has legs. You know what I mean? And so, I was scouring LinkedIn, trying to find a connection of connection, reaching out to people and wasn't having great luck. And then randomly, I actually said this to my dad at the time. I think I was like, oh, I'm really trying to meet someone at Mecca, not with having any luck. And he's like, I know someone who knows someone. And I was like, well, where were you two months ago? I've been trying for eight weeks, buddy. (laughs) And um, it was quite funny. And so then I got an introduction to somebody really important at Mecca. And I had a meeting with her and I took lab sample products in. They looked a bit different to how they look now a year before we launched and I just shared my story and I was like, this is what I'm trying to do. This is our mission and this is who we are and these are some of our products. And at the time, 
I didn't even have the dissolvable products. I didn't have the patent. Um, I was still in talks with them and I didn't even tell them I had that. And they were amazing. From the initial meeting, they believed in what I was doing, which was not expecting. And they were like, we love your mission. We love that you're a young Australian trying to do big things and we want to help you, which was pretty, pretty cool. And then so that took about, I would say, just a year. It takes that long because their team tried our products for a few months to make sure that, you know, the products worked and they're actually good, which obviously I feel like that should be a given. Don't launch a product unless it's good, right? Like, but you know, that's all, that's all good. They had to do their compliance DD, of course. Um, and, you know, we formed a really nice partnership. And so I'd locked them in and it, they were amazing. And so we launched them, yeah, it was May this year. So a few months after we launched. So we launched late November and then they, they launched in May. That's pretty incredible, particularly uh, yeah. as a challenger brand. So what do you think it was about the product that captured their attention and is also capturing the attention of the, the general public? Do you know what? I really think that we're a product that stands for more than a product and I think that's what they fell in love with. I think Mecca and the Mecca magic that they've created, it all centres around education and storytelling. And for us, we've got a unique story that we're trying to tell and a big dream and a big mission. And I think they really resonated and they really believed that, you know, I remember them saying to me like, oh, now is the time for a brand like yours. Um, And I was just like, wow, totally speechless. But I think that's what resonates with people. It's like, yes, of course, you're going to use our products to have great skin and conserve your own beauty. Like, of course, that's why we're all using skincare. But you'll know and feel good that that product is actually having a positive impact on the planet. So you can kind of not only shop with your skin in mind, but you can shop in line with your values. And you don't have to choose between having great skin and choosing a product that might not be good for the planet. So I feel like that's kind of why... We resonate so nicely. But, you know, of course our products are good. They wouldn't be on the shelves at Mecca if they weren't. Do you know what I mean? But social responsibility, that's been something that you've also been passionate about from an early age. Can you tell me where that came from? Did your family, um, were they particularly active in the social justice space or it's just something that... Absolutely. No, my parents, absolutely. My mum in particular has always been like, treat everybody with kindness and respect, always look after other people. There's always somebody that needs help and you've got to be that person. So that was very much ingrained as kids. And then my stepdad was a huge volunteer. He was he, he was doing so much work at the time with different hospitals and he would take us along. And so I grew up with that always being being like top of mind and like caring for people. And then when I moved schools in high school, I changed um, when I would have been about I think I was 14 or 15, I changed high schools. And the school I went to had a huge lens on social justice and they actually had programs. And so I started volunteering almost like my kind of co-curricular activities just because they had so many opportunities. Like we did, I did um, Red Cross every single year. I did the very special kids fair. I did weekly tutoring sessions. They called it Friday night school with kids that needed a bit extra support that they didn't maybe have at home and um, or people that didn't speak English as a first language. Um, so many things. I'm like, I think back, I petitioned for fair trade coffee in high school. I went on a big trip, um, an orphanage trip in Vietnam in year 11, like literally so many things. Um, but I think it was great that they even had the opportunities if you wanted to be a part of it, you could. So I guess the accessibility to that was, I was quite privileged to be able to have that. 
What do you think opened your eyes to purpose when it comes to business? I just feel like, of course, when you create a business, like you're, you're bringing something into the world or providing a solution to people that help solve a problem. But like, why can't that purpose be something positive for people? And so you'll feel good about doing what you're doing all day long. Like you probably agree. We spend most of our life working. Like that's all we do every day. Your work people become like your family at work, who you spend more time at work sometimes than you do at home. And so if you're spending so much time out of the office working towards something, why would you not want it to have a great like positive impact on people or the planet or, or something that has a bit of um a bit of a vision. And so I just feel like who wouldn't want to do that? And if I'm going to be working towards something all day, every day, of course I want it to leave like a positive impact. Mm. How do you measure your impact apart from, you know, like you can measure how much waste, how much water, your sustainability? How do you personally measure the impact that you're having as a brand? I think about so many things. I feel like that kind of falls under the the ESG bucket, the environmental, social and governance bucket. It's like, how are the people in my team treated? What's our maternity leave cover policy? What's our sick leave cover policy? How are they treated to and from work? Do they get downtime? Do they get mental health days? Like, I think about, you know, where, where's our office? What does our office have um, sorry, what does our office have in terms of the impact of the planet? So, for example, we work at a kosher working space that has, you know, fair trade coffee and they run on solar panels and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I feel like every single decision that we make in business tends to have a a outcome to um, people or the planet again. And so it doesn't necessarily just have to directly link to our products. It's around the people who work with us, our manufacturing team. We, we, we go visit them and we always bring them donuts and they always laugh because they have their tea break at 9.30 a.m. and we want to like be part of that and go visit them. So it's just, there's so many things that I think about. But I also think that all these people who help us every day make the dream come true, they're the reason why we're all being able to do what we do. So looking after everybody that's in our ecosystem is extremely important to me. Mm-hmm. Now, you recently won the Women of the Future Award. So what was that like? Oh, I know. I'm very excited. <laughs> and um, what does it mean to win it? Oh, I'm very excited. You'll you'll laugh. I feel like that's my first proper award. I feel like that's the first trophy I've ever got, apart from maybe like a participation medal. <laughs> um, so it was a bit, bit of extra special. I mean, being a part, even just being a finalist with the Women's Weekly, Women of the Future of the Ward, was completely surreal to be alongside five other brilliant founders who were like literally changing the game in all of their different fields and making the world like a better place in their own way. So I just felt honoured to be a part of that group of women. If I'm honest, I already felt like a winner. You'll laugh. Like I, I In my speech, I even think I said something like, I was like, I feel like I've won, but I haven't won. And then I actually did win, like, <laughs> but um, so that was funny. But yeah, it was awesome. I feel like it's such a brilliant initiative of Women's Weekly to spotlight young female entrepreneurs because being under the age of 34 in the category and being a young female, you know, especially me, I feel like we're often told you're too young, you're not good enough, you need a male co-founder, you can't do this on your own or so many things. And I just feel like, how brilliant that they would actually give the women a platform to be able to speak about what they're doing and have that exposure to a group of people that were in the room that actually cared and wanted to help. So I was I was really honoured 
Um, and of course, you know, the prize does absolutely help. They, it was a very generous prize and that helps to pay for our new machine. Um, so we're able to produce our dissolvable wipes here and we, we already make them here, but now we can produce them at a more of efficient speed, which is great. So I was very, very lucky and grateful for that as well. But yeah, it was an awesome experience. I, I got to meet so many cool people and now I'm friends with a few of the other founders, which is which is really nice. Yeah, and you just said, um, you know, like as women founders, there's often this perception that, you know, you don't have the right stuff kind of. Yeah. So what do you think you can do as a female founder to help change that and pave the way for, you know, the next lot of female entrepreneurs coming up the ranks? I mean, I definitely think it starts by giving people the opportunity. I mean, I've been approached several times now by people I don't even know. They'll message me on LinkedIn or they'll message me on Instagram and they'll just say, hey, I read this article about what you're doing and I love it. Can you? I'm thinking of my own business plan. Can you give me some advice? And so I'll always meet with them. I'll always help. I've introduced people to manufacturers or I've hooked them up with raw material suppliers. I've introduced other founders to investors and just any any way that you can help someone, like why wouldn't you? I even met a founder yesterday at a conference I was at. Um, she's an international founder and she wanted to look at setting up a supply chain in Australia to distribute and I automatically hooked her up. We're going, she's going to, you know, visit the lab tomorrow. And yeah, I mean, I just feel like any introduction or pathway or connection or advice to help other women in business, of course, I will always put that as like a number one priority. I wouldn't be here without all the strong women in my life who helped guide, mentor, teach me. So it's like, of course, I'm going to help anyone who needs it. I mean, I would help men too, don't get me wrong, but I just feel like women, it's not that they need extra help. It's sometimes we just need the extra push because we're used to hearing from people that we shouldn't or we're not enough or et cetera. And it's probably why there are less female founders and it's probably why only 2% of venture capital funding globally goes to women-led businesses, which is just unacceptable. And so anything we can do to help other young women and female entrepreneurs thrive in business, that is a number one priority, always. What's your number one pitch tip? Ooh, I would say if you're super confident and back and believe in what you're doing, you'll convince anyone. So you have to be 100% confident and committed in what you're doing because if you are, you'll convince anyone that your solution is the right way. Uh, should we always be looking for that? Like what's the solution to the problem? Is yeah, I think so. I think if you're creating a business or service, you're you're creating a solution because otherwise why would you exist? I feel like we don't need more things or more stuff um, in the world. I feel like if you're creating something in a business, it should always be centered around a solution. Thank you so much, Natasha. That's all we've got time for Thank today. You. Head to conservingbeauty.com to find out more about Natasha's business and her plans to eliminate water waste from the beauty sector. Hope she moves on to more and more products and we see less and less water waste in this industry. So thanks again. We've loved hearing your, your entrepreneurial journey. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so honoured to be here. And thank you all for listening. Join us again next week for another episode of First Act. Bye for now.